Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today, I'm talking to Associate Professor Lee Hickey from the University of Queensland. He leads a research team focused on plant breeding innovation, that is, finding and communicating ways to do plant breeding better, faster and more cost-effectively. He talks in this conversation about how a limited view of what agricultural science is about originally set him on a path in life that didn't work out, and how this has made him passionate about bringing more bright young people into the sector. We also discuss how an explosion of technologies within and outside of plant breeding combine to transform what's possible in improving genetic gain and how detractors are a fact of life when you're forging a new path forwards. Thank you for joining me today, Lee. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. So just to get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a plant breeder or crop geneticist, I I suppose. Um, I lead uh, a lab on plant breeding innovation. What exactly is that? Well, uh, we do research to help support plant breeding programs. Everything from you know, understanding the genetics of um, important traits like drought adaptation or disease resistance to tools to help support more efficient plant breeding. So uh, tools like speed breeding or genomic selection, for example. How did plants and plant breeding become a thing for you? Was there a childhood aha moment or was it more gradual? Uh, well, I, I maybe I have a bit of a weird story, but I grew up in the city, so I, I certainly wasn't around uh, any farms. But as at a very young age, I um, had this fascination for growing vegetables. I had a veggie patch in the backyard from about um, eight years old, and I just loved you know reading up on. Um, you know, sowing guides, you know, when to plant your potatoes and radishes and what, what's the best row spacing to use to maximize yield. And um, I found that I, was, I became a bit of a nerd of, of, of uh, gardening. And um, I'd rush home from school, you know, to tend my veggie patch um, at, you know, eight, nine years of age. And, but I think that's where um, my passion sort of started for plants and, and, and food production. So you had this interest early on, but I guess that could have led you into, well, I mean, it could have led you into all sorts of different plant-related fields, or indeed, you might have just kept it as a hobby. How did you get from there as a kid to what you're doing now? Tell me a little bit more about that journey. Yeah, well, growing up in the city and as a younger individual, you, you're you very um you know, open to the opinion of your peers. Um, you know, going into work in agriculture is not something that a lot of kids are doing growing up in the city. And and so I felt like um, even though I was very good at agricultural science at school, um, I felt like I couldn't really pursue that as a career. Um, I, I, I was under the impression that agricultural science was something like, you know, driving tractors and, and, and hailing, you know, 
you know, throwing around hay and, and that sort of thing. But, but what I didn't realize was that agricultural science was, you know, using cutting edge science and technology to really solve some of the big problems that we face in the world and in terms of food production. And I guess growing up in the city, you, you don't really realize that. And I think that's the big problem with this disconnect of worlds from where our food comes from. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I initially took uh, marine biology at, at university. I actually dropped out. Um, it's all timing in life. I, I wasn't really interested at all. Um, and I took a full-time job cleaning toilets. <laughs> Uh, and I fast realized that that was literally pretty shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I had to do something. Um, so I, I took the plunge and I re-enrolled um, back in agricultural science. And, um, you know, uh, it was interesting, but it wasn't until like a critical field trip that I actually missed out uh, because I was out late partying the night before and um, actually missed the bus. And so... The next week, I had to go um, to the field trip as a replacement uh, option. Um, I traveled with a professor and a bunch of other crop scientists from CSIRO. Um, one of them was Greg Rubetsky, very famous geneticist. And um, I traveled the whole day around looking at different drought adapt adaptive traits that they were working on. And I thought it was just fascinating how through plant breeding, you could harness these types of traits and improve on-farm production. Like, I guess I wasn't passionate about it at that stage, but at least it was interesting enough, you know, to pursue as a career. And, um, and you know, over time, the uh, passion develops. There's something in that, isn't there, that story about, you know, this, well, there's two things that strike me. One is you don't know what you don't know. You know, most of us probably end up in careers we didn't even know existed when we were kids. Um, so there's one piece about how do you just shed light on, agriculture and all the amazing options and angles that can be taken within that and then the other is you sort of said oh the peer group it wasn't really the done thing and and how do you how do you how do we make this a much more how do we how do we express how exciting and how much opportunity there is in agriculture and how important it is there's quite a challenge there isn't there for for the agricultural and plant science community yeah I think we really need smart young people coming into agricultural science to solve some of these really big challenges we face. And, and the young people coming through have, you know, totally different skill sets um, and are very switched on. You know, a good example was I had a lab meeting the other week and um, we had uh, a summer intern uh, give an overview of her uh, research project uh, that was just a few weeks long, uh, but she has excellent programming skills at the age of 19 she was able to write software uh, where you could simulate a whole breeding program. And, and they're the sort of skills that you know, we need in, in plant breeding um, to crunch you know, big data and to connect you know, phenotype, genotype information. Wow, that's a great example. <laughs> so she won't be out of a job anytime soon. She will not. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that your focus is tools for plant breeding, you know, techniques, ways of doing plant breeding rather than developing a particular crop or a particular set of varieties. And one of the things you're most well known for is speed breeding, which I think we've already touched on some angles. It brings together technologies and different disciplines and brings them to plant breeding. So let's start with the basics. What is speed breeding and why would you need it? Could, could you just start with that? Yeah, well, speed breeding uh, is just 
a catchier name for rapid generation advance, um, I would say. And a lot of experienced plant breeders would be very familiar with rapid generation advance. It's been around for a long time. Yeah, essentially, speed breeding is all about um, growing plants fast. The only difference is, I guess, with speed breeding is that there are a lot of different applications for growing plants fast for all areas of you know, research, pre-breeding, and actual breeding. Um, so anytime we need to grow plants, you know, a lot of plant scientists or geneticists uh, or plant breeders are just sitting around waiting for plants to grow. So if we can speed up this process, it can really accelerate you know, research outcomes and applied plant breeding outcomes. Essentially, what it all comes down to is controlling key environmental factors like uh, temperature and photo period to promote early flowering and achieve that rapid generation advance. So we've developed uh, and protocols for a whole range of different long day and short day species now, uh, working together with collaborators you know, here in Australia and, and, and overseas. And this wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, because the technologies to enable it w just weren't there. Is that right? Yeah, there's a, there's a convergence of technologies that have been rapidly developing and that makes it possible to scale up and cost-effectively apply speed breeding platforms as part of a mainstream uh, plant breeding operation and as part of a mainstream activity for research programs to utilize. Yeah, and a key part of that has been around the LED lighting technology uh, booming in, in recent years. What is possible today in terms of light intensity and quality of light that, that these LEDs can emit just wasn't there probably five years ago. And the costs have dramatically come down. Uh, this is converting to energy savings, which is really critical for driving down costs for plant breeding. Um, and so plant breeders, um, both in the public and private sector, have set up now very large scale speed breeding operations, which has changed completely how plant breeding is working. You know, going from uh, the field to basically indoors, um, where they can grow large plant populations, essentially horticulturalize the breeding process, grow plants for just a few cents and rapidly cycle them all year round. Uh, so we're talking about tens of thousands of plants at once. Uh, it's almost like a plant factory, if you think of it this way. And I, would, I think it's, it's really perfect for integrating with the whole genomics platforms that plant breeding programs use today. So how does that translate into real world applications? I can see that speeding up the process is great, but how does that knock on and, and what's the big picture effect? I think at the end of the day, the easiest way to think about this tool is around delivering better crop varieties sooner to farmers. But if we break it down and we think about the, uh, the components that it's really influencing inside a breeding program, um, you can think of the genetic gain equation, if you like, um, which is really central to the whole plant breeding approach. So time uh, or breeding cycle length is critical. In integrating speed breeding technology into a breeding program can save one to two years on a breeding cycle, um, which can have a huge effect on genetic gain over time. But not only that, uh, because these systems are more cost efficient, you can generate larger numbers of population for evaluation in the field. You can integrate uh, marker-assisted selection or other types of selection as part of the process. So you can, you can already apply selection before these elite materials or inbred materials hit the paddock uh, for evaluation. So it's really targeting many aspects of the breeder's equation to improve overall efficiency of 
breeding progress, which is really important for you know, meeting the future demands. If we think about 2050, we supposedly have to feed 10 billion people. It means that most of our crop improvement programs need to double the rate of genetic gain to help achieve this goal. And when we talked previously, you touched on, you know, having a real sense of purpose around that need to feed people. You know, it's not, it's, it, you talked about um, just now that your passion for plants just because they're interesting in their own right, but also that's coupled with a sense of, look, there's a, there's a really important job to be done here. Do you want to just expand on that for a moment? The reality is we're not going to do things more efficiently by doing the same thing we've always done. We, it requires change. And the tricky thing is with anything that works to make things better, it, it, it can be challenging uh, because how much better? Are you sure it's going to be better before I change? Um, you know, I once heard it uh, described like um, uh, actually from Hans Brown, who was the, the previous leader of the wheat breeding program at, 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 at Simmet. He described it as steering a big ship. And if you wanted to change course, you've got to be sure because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's critical. You're going to change the direction very much. So showing that these different technologies and tools can provide advantages in terms of improved efficiencies is really important. If we're going to, um, you know, help convince um, plant breeders across all the different crops, public sector, private sector, uh, to start incorporating these things and change the way they're doing things. It's a it's a big challenge and, and there's so many technologies and ways in which you can integrate these things. You know, there's probably less stars in the galaxy, perhaps, in terms of how all these different combinations can come together. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. Tell me a little bit about something that, at the moment, is really energising you in your work. Oh, I think I think something that's really energising me now, uh, in the last week or two, has really been around preparing... Uh, for our field trials coming up there's a there's a really big effort we're trying to pull together this year for a, a lot of really big um, field experiments uh, testing a whole range of different drought adaptation traits uh, in the field and and we've spent the last probably five years developing these um, materials to go into these field trials so we can really compare the value of different drought adaptive traits for, for breeders. And so, yeah, there's a real big effort to try to integrate above ground phenotyping using UAV platforms, as well as all the below ground phenotyping with soil coring. Um, so it's a pretty big effort with lots of people involved. Oh, wow. That sounds really interesting. And working with such a, a mix of teams must be really exciting. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's about working together in a multidisciplinary team you know, bringing together expertise from physiology, quantitative genetics, you know, modeling, um, engineering as well uh, to, to try to better understand how these traits and genetics are working for drought adaptation. Um, yeah, I think it's really exciting to be part of that team and because you have these different ideas coming together from the, the different people bringing these complementary skill sets together. Um, you know, I guess, I guess this is how 
Um, a lot of commercial breeding sort of operates too with these different skill sets coming together. But yeah, I think that's where, you know, the magic happens in, in science. It's these uh, multidisciplinary sort of approaches that can solve some big problems. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is bringing technology to agriculture more generally. And as those technologies develop for agriculture in general, they're also developing for plant breeding. And and I know that speed breeding is just one of the areas that you're working on. Do you want to give other examples of how you're combining technologies that are coming to agriculture for this purpose, for plant breeding? Yeah, I I think a lot of these technologies um, on their own, some of them are quite innovative. They have their own advantages. But the big gains, I think, from a plant breeding perspective is effective integration of multiple technologies coming together. And it sounds a bit corny, but it's, I guess it's technology fusion, uh, you could call it. You know, a good example is, you know, uh, a lot, often a conversation we have with a lot of breeders and researchers is, what, what's better, double haploids? or SSD or speed breeding. And, and then, you know, you, we can have this conversation about the pros and cons, but ultimately um, there's advantages in integrating the both uh, as well. So we've got to stop thinking about these tools as individual and, and how they can be unified and come together to, to give us a, a better outcome. Well, it's a bit like, is it better to have a hammer or is it better to have a screwdriver? Well, you kind of better to have both. It's, you know, <laughs> that's right. It might be a bit simple, yeah. but I guess that's the point you're making. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you need the full toolkit, don't you? Um, exactly. To build a house. Some other examples on how we're integrating different technologies, I guess, um, is around trying to integrate speed breeding with genome editing or CRISPR. We think there's uh, an opportunity to try to take a CRISPR out of the lab try to do it in a glasshouse or speed breeding environment where theoretically you could edit tens of thousands of plants at once and avoid all these bottlenecks associated with the tissue culture process. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could do that, we could integrate it with you know, rapid cycling, um, genomic prediction as well. So that, that, that's exciting space. And similarly, we're, we're working to integrate speed breeding and genomic selection. And working with uh, colleagues, uh, Kai Vosfels, Ben Hayes, we're looking at ways not just using the standard genomic selection approach, but how can we further advance that and try to use methods that predict the best parents to use for crosses, which is a bit different. Um, And we're using artificial intelligence algorithms to tap into the massive data sets that we have on some of these breeding populations. Um, So we're talking 700, 900, you know, yield data sets uh, with, with thousands of SNPs across the genome and, and trying to pick the best parents mm-hmm. uh, to bring complementary parts of the genome together in the shortest time frame possible. And that's where speed breeding comes in to help make that a reality faster to create those stacks quickly. One of the consequences of this, you can't be specialist in every single technology. You know, that's, it's about pulling those technologies together. But the consequence is that it's very collaborative and you touched previously on this sort of collaboration point. So can you just expand on that for me? How do you go about that? What do you get out of it? You know, tell me a little bit more about the collaboration piece. Yeah, I'm, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm not an expert on anything at all, actually. Um, <laughs> one of my best skills, it's, it, and I think that's it's common for a lot of plant breeders, actually, is that they're effective integrators. 
of you know different disciplines of and and seeking and collaborating with the right people um, to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, and I guess I've been fortunate. I've had so many mentors um, from different fields, um, from crop modeling to quantitative genetics to plant breeders to pathologists. Um, I've, I've gained really valuable insight from each of them. Um, and I and I think that the key behind the success of uh, of any successful plant breeder, they're really effective integrators. Why do you put so much emphasis on communication and communicating about what you're doing? Um, can you give me an example of how that helps you? Yeah, for me, I'm, I'm very passionate about um, communicating science um, and playing around with new ways that we can do that, um, innovative ways of communicating. Uh, I think it's really critical for for the whole of science, not just plant breeding, that all scientists are doing a better job at, at communicating what they do. To the public or to each other? Well, <laughs> you, you could argue both, uh, but but I, I guess I'm more referring to the public. Um, and and because science is, is so critical um, uh, for, for so many fields and and yet the general public just have no idea uh, a lot of the time what, what we do, um, let, let alone the outcomes uh, of that research. And, and let's face it, we need more support and more funding for science. You know, here in Australia, we've faced a lot of cuts around science. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need the general public to understand the value of science and what we do if they're going to be the ones that fund it. So, it comes back to us and we've got to do a better job at communicating. And, and I think that will hopefully improve the exposure of the great work that a lot of scientists do. Is there a particular reason that speed breeding was the thing that brought that passion for communication together with the passion for developing new tools? Or was that just circumstance? That's just the way it worked out? Um, I think the, the speed breeding one was a, is a good example um, where the protocols and the technique and the opportunity to scale this technology hadn't been effectively communicated at all. And in fact, when, we, when I first started working in this area, you know, my colleagues here at UQ, they developed some of the speed breeding protocols, you know, they were using it for their research and some breeding. Um, similar protocols had also emerged uh, in different institutes around the world. Other you know, private breeding companies developed their own protocols, um, but of course it's not in their business model to make some of that information public. So accessibility to protocols uh, for public breeding programs was just not there. Um, and for the common researcher, how do they grow plants fast? And so we uh, saw a, an opportunity to, to really you know, write the protocols in a way that makes all the information digestible, um, accessible in a guide, in a step-by-step -step guide, if you like. And we were lucky. <laughs> we got these articles published in some of the, you know, the fanciest science journals, you know, in nature, plants, uh, nature protocols, nature biotechnology. These journals don't often publish um, traditional plant breeding stuff, but we managed to get these articles in these journals, which also increased the exposure coupled with a lot of media effort and communication, you know, I think we've seen some pretty widespread adoption of the technology now, which is really exciting. Not everybody approves of communicating science in the way that you are and the, the energy and passion that you put behind it. Tell me a bit about the people who detract from 
that effort that you've been that you've been pursuing any field um you know if if people become successful or they get a, a spotlight put on them or there's a certain amount of um haters that they um that they have um you know and I, and I guess that can be caused by many things um it could be jealousy or it could be just genuine dislike for the way that they're doing things or they just might not like the the clothes they wear or or whatever but is it is, is it trolls or is it more like just you know academic disagreement there's an element of academic disagreement and that's healthy that's good um i guess there's a there's there are some small number of people out there that are very spiteful and and really don't like you know the way that we've been communicating some of the things and i find that to be really not the best attitude uh when we're trying to promote science in general um and new technologies that a lot of breeding programs um still don't use or don't have the capacity to use and just because they might have used that technology for a long time in their breeding program doesn't mean everyone else does and um and so we've got to look at the bigger picture here that there's a lot of plant breeding going on and a lot of different species around the world in developing countries as well it's not just about you know if you've got a breeding program with a 20 million dollar budget have you been doing it for the last 10 years it's about getting all those other plant breeders to catch up to where we are in some of these other crops in some of these other regions so i think you know that that's what that's what's been the ambition and drive behind a lot of the communication that we've been doing. Can you give me an example of the sort of negative pushback that you've had? In the beginning, they, they said, oh, you, you literally, you can't speed breed crops. You can't, you can't grow them indoors and, and cycle them quickly and grow them fast. And well, we know that that myth is busted now. Um, uh, commercial breeders do this um, as part of their program daily at a big scale. Uh, there's, there's, and there's people that just think that, well, it's been around for a long time, so why are you promoting this technology? I, I, I knew someone back in the 80s who grew a plant really fast in their basement. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's been done. So what's new about this? And, and I, I, I say, yes, that's correct. It has been around a long time. In fact, <laughs> you know, some of the first experiments done on plants uh, using continuous light were done back in the early 1900s. You know, it, it, and that's, that's great, but it's about integrating this tool into breeding programs, doing it at scale, doing it cost effectively, streamlining the process. And, and, and you know, um, that's the difference to making this a once off thing to embed it as a mainstream tool is, is a different is a different thing. That's that's a great example. So how do you deal with that? How do you know? Do you have any tips for people who are getting the pushback on their, uh, you know, on their <laughs> on their efforts or pursuits to promote something? Yeah, I think you know if you are getting a small number of haters, then you're on the right track. Keep pushing um, because in no matter what field you are, there's these people out there that are going to be spiteful. They're going to not like it. Um, they're not going to like change and just keep pushing. As long as you have a lot more supporters than you do haters, you, you're going to end up winning at the end of the day. It's hard. It's hard though some days um, because those haters really get you down. Right, right. 
What opportunities do you see for the future? You know, I suppose if I, if I could predict the future, uh, I'd be doing it already. I think around the integration of the technologies, we're working on integrating speed reading with genomic prediction approaches with some of my colleagues here at UQ. That's an exciting space and, and one we know seems to be quite successful and popular in the private um, sector. Developing those protocols for more public breeding programs is important. But yeah, I think it's 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 tricky to say. Uh, I'm 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 always thinking about this. Like, what's what's going to be impactful for the future? So we're doing and in, in working and investing on our time on this correctly. It's hard. Are there any influences you're particularly grateful for so far in your career? I'm really grateful for a lot of the mentors I've had. This is really priceless. And it's funny how it, it, it happens over time. Um, a lot of people maybe don't, haven't, haven't had the opportunities that I've had. And I'm, I'm really grateful for this. And I feel like because I've had such exposure and mentoring and, and support along the way, I, I feel such immense pressure to do something impactful that's going to have a make a difference and so i feel all this time and effort that we've been working on these things and training and and developing if i don't achieve something impactful then all of that a waste i really see the next generation um and training the next generation to be critical in that it's almost you know too late for me oh <laughs> don't say that that's depressing <laughs> <laughs> but but in a way you know like i mentioned earlier um, you know, the 19-year-old with the amazing coding skills, you know, that's the future. And, and, and if we can be helping to train these, you know, young people coming through into agricultural science and, and particularly plant breeding, equipping them with the right sort of skill sets to go on to make a big difference. If I can just play a small role in that, that would be very rewarding. Well, that feels like a really good place to wrap things up. So thank you very much for your time today. Associate Professor Lee Hickey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Hannah. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.